Welcome to First Reading, the Old Testament lectionary podcast that inspires confident preaching and teaching from the Hebrew Bible. I'm Rosie Candethel, a PhD candidate in Hebrew Bible at Emory University. And I'm Paul Essa, also a PhD student in Hebrew Bible at Yale University. Our co-host, Dr. Rachel Rand, is off this week, but Tim McNinch is here. Hey, Tim! <laughs> because it is Easter season, the first reading is taken from the Acts of Apostles, the stoning of Stephen. But since we are an Old Testament lectionary podcast, we are taking a deep dive into the Psalms for this week. Psalm 31, verse 1 through 5, and then we take a jump to 15 through 16. For those looking for the immediate lectionary connection, the last verse of the Apostle Stephen is in Acts chapter 7, verse 51, which echoes the refrain from Psalm 31, verse 5. Into your hands I commit my spirit. And to help us dig into the psalm, we have a very, very special guest on the podcast today. That's right, Paul. We're grateful to welcome to our Zoom studio, Dr. William Brown. Dr. Brown is the William Marcellus McFeeters Professor of Old Testament at Columbia Theological Seminary and an ordained minister of the Presbyterian Church USA. Bill brings a wealth of experience of teaching in the classroom, as well as equipping ministers in the church to our conversation today. He's also the author of several books, which you may want to make note of, including Seeing the Psalms, A Theology of Metaphor, God and the Imagination, a primer to reading the Psalms in an age of pluralism, Deep Calls to Deep, The Psalms in Dialogue Amid Disruption, and he's also the editor of the Oxford Handbook of the Psalms. Those are just his titles directly on the Psalms, friends. Some of you may also remember using his handbook to Old Testament exegesis, That's which right. has become an Old Testament seminary classroom staple uh-huh. for many of us, both as students and teachers. So, Dr. Brown, thank you for joining us and a hearty welcome to First Reading. Yay. Thank you, Rosie. Thank you, Paul. <laughs> it's a delight to be here. It is. Uh, as, as one of your former students, someone you mentored, uh, into what I am today. It is a very good, very good feeling to have you on this podcast today. Uh, <laughs> we usually start with uh, some background for our listeners to get to know you. And I wanted to ask you a question that draws some attention to your work with the Psalms in particular. Could you give our listeners some insight into how you have come to see the Psalms over time? How has your uh, thoughts on these unique set of texts evolved over time? Thank you, Paul. And it is good to, uh, to converse with you and with Rosie about the Psalms, and particularly Psalm 31. So I've been uh, working with the Psalms for a few years now, uh, and uh, my interests in the Psalms have evolved over the years. Uh, the one book you mentioned, um, Rosie, early on in my work, Seeing the Psalms, A Theology of Metaphor, that was my um, way of acknowledging and honoring the wealth of imagery that the Psalms provide, that the Psalms comprise a storehouse of uh, images and metaphors. And even though the Psalms don't usually include pictures, but the language, poetic as it is, uh, is filled with evoking images. Um, and we'll encounter a couple in Psalm 31 as well. So that was my uh, initial dive into the Psalms, exploring how they, uh, how they invoke uh, images in our mind uh, and do so in such a bewildering variety. And uh, more recently, the book that you mentioned, Paul, on 
dialogue. Uh, the word dialogue is key now as to how I see the Psalms because it's my way of honoring that the Psalms, the book of Psalms is probably the most diverse mm-hmm. book in the, at least in the Hebrew Bible. Mm-hmm. Um, oh, the Christian Bible as well. I'll, I'll go so far mm-hmm. to say that too. Um, because it, it contains such a variety of perspectives uh, from the royal Psalms uh, to the Psalms that uh, conjure the voice of the poor and the needy, uh, in which the psalmist identifies as such, and everything in between. And uh, the Psalms are in dialogue with the rest of the Bible. I've, I take Martin Luther, uh, his uh, description of the book of Psalms as the little Bible as my cue in this uh, recent work. And if the Psalms, if everything, if all the themes and the stories of the Bible can be found in the Psalms, or at least most of them, how do the Psalms uh, engage the rest of the Bible in terms of creation and history and law or Torah? Uh, The Psalms offer different perspectives. And I think in part that the Psalms were written to um, engage in, in sort of a dialogical hermeneutic with the rest of the Bible. So, yeah, that has been an exciting and adventurous uh, excursion for me, uh, written, I think, in a very timely fashion, because, boy, don't we all need oh my better ways to dialogue with each other amid all of our differences yeah. politically mm-hmm. and theologically and religiously. Um, and so my big point is that with the Psalms as my basis, that what the Bible is all about is dialogue, um, because so many different perspectives are contained. Oh, I love that. But you've not <laughs> only had conversation partners with the Psalms. I mean, you your scholarly work has also embraced the wisdom tradition more broadly, the prophets, the Ten Commandments, and even the creation accounts. So yeah. I wanted to ask maybe a broader, maybe more personal question, kind of pull back for our listeners. What has kind of drawn you through your journey and your background as a biblical scholar? What brought you to the worlds of teaching the Bible and writing? Um, are there some common threads or influences that have helped to shape your career? Yes and no. Uh, I, um, I I could never predict uh, what I'm doing now years ago, even as I began my teaching ministry uh, at another seminary, Union Presbyterian Seminary in Richmond. Shout out to them <laughs> in, in Virginia. Um, yeah, so I... Um, all I can say, Rosie, is that I grew up in a very um, interesting place, and that is the southwest desert of Arizona. Hmm. And um, and so I'm a desert rat by uh, identity, and uh, I love the landscape of the desert, um, and that taught me how to love creation. And that arid environment, um, uh, a love for that... Um, also has uh, connected to my love to the uh, the landscape of the Bible um, in a predominantly arid landscape, much of it desert, uh, as well as quite diverse uh, with uh, the mountains from the Negev Desert to the cedar forests of Lebanon. Um, and uh, not coincidentally, perhaps, uh, the state of Arizona is equally diverse, too. Uh, so, uh, so a love of the land. And uh, the land that is so heavily featured in, in the ancient scriptures. Uh, but, uh, you know, some of my favorite psalms are the creation psalms. Um, and I, I've done some deep dive into the wisdom psalms and dialogue with the wisdom literature. 
That's really fascinating. I'm sure I'm sure we could do a, a whole podcast on your life and your scholarship, but we probably should get into the, the text and the reading for this week. So, Bill, uh, would you mind reading Psalm 31 for us? And please tell us the translation that you will be using. Yeah, I'll be using the NBV, <laughs> okay. which is the new Brown version. Um, so the last detail is that I'm working on a Psalms commentary uh, for OTL, Old Testament Library. Oh. And... Uh, so I've been translating psalms and commenting on them for, for years now, and I'm, I still have at least two or three more years to finish this project. But I, I do have some, I think, some pretty solid translations of the psalms. And so, yeah, here's the lectionary passage of Psalm 31, according to the NBV. Yeah. To the leader, a psalm of David. In you, O Lord, I take refuge. Never let me be put to shame. Rescue me by your righteousness. Incline your ear to me. Deliver me quickly. Be for me a rock of refuge, a citadel to save me. For you indeed are my rock and my fortress. For your name's sake, lead me and guide me. Take me out of the net that you have secretly set for me, for you are my stronghold. Into your hand I entrust my spirit. You have redeemed me, O Lord, faithful God. And then verses 15 and 16. My times are in your hand. Deliver me from the hand of my enemies, from my pursuers. Shine your face on your servant. Save me by your faithful benevolence. So that's the excerpt from Psalm 31 that is featured in the uh, Common Lectionary. And folks, you heard it here first, the NBV. <laughs> so thank you, Bill, for that. Fresh translation, actually, was really helpful. Um, let's maybe start with our usual introduction and background to this passage. So Psalm 31 is grouped by tradition into book one of the five books of the Psalms. And although it's notoriously difficult to determine date or authorship or audience of individual Psalms, is there anything we can say about how Psalm 31 fits more broadly into the book? And is there any way we might be able to understand that superscription to the leader, a song Davidic? Yeah, Lemonat Seach, Ms. Murda David. Yeah, you're exactly right, Rosie, that many psalms, if not most psalms, are notoriously difficult to, to do. Some psalms, however, do talk about the, the exile and, and the destruction um, of uh, Jerusalem uh, in very vivid language. But we don't get really any clear indications here in Psalm 31. Um, it, is, it does follow a very interesting psalm, Psalm 30, that is a thanksgiving psalm for healing, and in that superscription, it is attributed to the rededication of the temple, uh, which is an interesting thing. So, so that goes to show that uh, the Psalms have no copyright restrictions. They can be used in a variety of uh, contexts and situations. And so who knows how this Psalm, Psalm 31, was used. Uh, but it does seem to paint a picture of social conflict and strife uh, between uh, the speaker here and those whom the speaker deems as uh, wicked, as, as, as their enemy. Um, and, of course, that's something that uh, cuts across all historical periods, conflict. <laughs> yeah. 
Yeah, yeah. So, um, but the fact that it is attributed to David, the superscription invites us to imagine David in this situation. Mm. Um, it doesn't necessarily claim strict historical authorship on the part of David, because the Hebrew preposition can be translated in a number of ways, um, about David, regarding David, for David, to David, or by David, or of David. Uh, so, um, what what the superscription of a title uh, claims is that it is, in some sense, Davidic. It has something to do with David. Whether historically that is true or not, that's just too difficult to determine, because there's nothing really in the psalm itself that would point exclusively to David. But we do know of David in the uh, in in the books of Samuel as one who faced a lot of conflict and revolt and uh, uh, persecution mm -hmm. by Saul, mm -hmm. for instance, mm -hmm. as well as um, his deep dive into sin. And um, although this is not a penitential psalm, mm -hmm. um, but the next one, the one that follows, is somewhat penitential. Let's talk a little bit about the structure. We have often discussed on this podcast, you know, the benefits and the drawbacks of the RCL, you know, lectionary. Um, yes. And so let's talk about the omission. Uh, how does the yeah, omission yeah. of 6 through 14 and then 17 through 24 affect our preaching and understanding of Psalm 31? Well, there's so much that is lost with this very... Um, a brief excerpt of Psalm 31. Um, and uh, it's important to note what is missed, as you've asked, Paul. And what I find so fascinating about the missing material is that uh, the psalmist describes in great detail about uh, their own suffering, uh, both bodily and socially. Uh, the, the psalmist complains of being socially isolated. Um, uh, the psalmist complains about lies about them that, uh, that are destructive. Um, and so there's a lot of wonderful and graphic imagery of uh, personal suffering that follows uh, after verse 5. My strength stumbles because of my affliction. My bones waste away. I'm an object of contempt to all my adversaries. I am a terror to my friends. I hear slander, the slander of many, saying, terror all around. That's sort of a nod towards Jeremiah. Um, but, but, as for me, I place my trust in you, O Lord. I proclaim you are my God. And then verse 15 comes in. Uh, my times are in your hand. But you know what I, um, what I also miss in this um, very selective excerpt of Psalm 31 is the depiction in verse 20 of God uh, providing shelter in God's wings uh, for the uh, for the speaker. Um, I've always been attracted to to various images of God in the Psalms, and uh, and this one about God having wings is actually a somewhat prominent image of God, yeah. an ornithological image of God, um, which actually matches this uh, repeated metaphor of rock and fortress. Mm. Um, so we have a variety of images um, of refuge uh, that God provides for the, the speaker. And finally, you know, I am just really sad, if not a bit righteously angry, that, um, that uh, verse, verse 24 is, has been dropped, because that is really the point of the psalm as a whole. Mm. Be strong, let your heart be emboldened, 
all you who wait for the Lord. It's a call for the perseverance of of the saints, (laughs) Uh, for resilience and for for becoming courageous and bold in, um, in enduring such suffering and being unwavering in one trusts in one's trust of God. I agree. <laughs> I, um, I join you in lament over the lost verses in Psalm 31, but what we're left with also um, gives us quite a bit to work with, right? Mm-hmm. So let's maybe dive into uh, a little more deeply into the actual text. So if we're looking at verse one, yes. um, let's look at this word, Bosch, so for shame, right? So in light of the like recent works by Brene Brown and the Bowen family systems theory and even Sigmund Freud, that word shame has become a common word in much of the United States and popular imagination. What was the understanding of Bosch in the biblical text, especially here in this psalm where we hear shame, don't let me be ashamed. Mm-hmm. There's, there's so much of that emphasis here. How does the understanding yeah. of the psalmist maybe both overlap and challenge our understanding of the word shame today. Well, uh, Rosie, I am ashamed to say that I don't know all of the issues involved with shame. Uh, but I think I think uh, shame is used in a very different fashion than the way shame is used in our, um, particularly our psychological discourse uh, today, as well as our everyday discourse. Um it's interesting to note that the other verse in which shame is registered in the psalm is in verse 17. Mm-hmm. O Lord, do not let me be put to shame when I cry out, but let the wicked be put to shame, silenced by Sheol. Shame here is a social thing. Mm-hmm. It's, a, I guess, a social construct that um, is part and parcel of a situation of, of conflict. And the speaker here regards themselves as righteous, and the wicked is wicked. That is, uh, the adversary is as wicked. And so the question is, who gets to be shamed, and who gets to be victorious? And so shame here is all about losing the battle, and not necessarily a physical battle in the battlefield. This could perhaps unfold in a law court. Uh, in which uh, the, the speaker feels slandered and, uh, and, and the speaker does complain of the, the lies of the wicked and, and slandering of uh, the psalmist. Uh, so shame has to do with losing one's case, uh, losing the, the battle, quote-unquote, losing one's cause. It's not, it's not the, the kind of internalized psychological shame that, uh, that we think about when we use the word shame. Um, shame here means the, um, the shame of defeat uh, in the midst of conflict in which there has to be a winner and there has to be a loser. And that, that actually coheres with the, the ancient attitude of uh, honor and shame. The opposite of shame is honor. Uh, and it's a zero-sum game, I'm sorry to say, when it comes to honor and shame in the ancient world. So for some person, for some people to have honor, others have to be shamed. It's the myth of scarcity with regards to shame and honor. Hmm. And so that kind of worldview is what the psalmist is operating in. The psalmists are not really that concerned about the, the psychology of shame or internalized shame. 
So verses three to four continue to repeat and kind of build upon this refrain of God as rock and fortress and citadel, <laughs> ideas of safety and security, impregnability, as you've talked about, mm-hmm. while also adding this plea of to pull me out of the net that is hidden for me. Could you maybe help us think through the poetry of this language and the way the psalmist might be using some of these images to build together and move us, the, the, move the listener, us. towards something? Yeah, it's all about seeking God as refuge. And um, we actually have two metaphors operating here. Mm-hmm. One is the rock metaphor of God's safety and protection as refuge. And then this, the speaker then talks about um, being led and guided by God for God's namesake. So there's a little bit of a tension here. All right, mm. is, this, is the speaker wanting to simply be stationed and well-established uh, by God's protection? Because um, there's not much room to move around within a fortified um, house. Mm-hmm. <laughs> mm-hmm. Uh, but on the other hand, uh, the speaker is asking for guidance and leading um, which assumes mobility uh, out in the open. Mm. Uh, what many Psalms refer to as the as the speaker's own path or way. Um, that uh, that metaphor isn't used directly here, but it is implicit in um, in verse three. For your namesake, lead me and guide me. And so I think that's where uh, this uh, reference to the net uh, is pertinent. Mm. Take me out of the net. Free me from the net that they have secretly set for me, for you are my stronghold. And so as a net um, in the ancient world is used for hunting, uh, a net uh, maybe covering a hole uh, for an animal to fall into. But I'm, I'm taken with, um, in verse 3, uh, lead me and guide me for your namesake. Mm-hmm. That, that is an intertextual allusion to Psalm 23. Uh, for your name's sake, you lead me along the paths of righteousness. Yeah. Mm. Uh, and so I, I'm wondering if there's a, an echo of Psalm 23 here in Psalm 31, or at least maybe common language. Mm. Uh, of the common language of leading and guiding is where you find in Psalm 23 as well. And there mm. you have the path of righteousness, or perhaps better, the right paths. Um, and so m- perhaps the speaker is thanking themselves of themselves as a sheep. Mm. Maybe there's a subtle allusion mm. to that. Mm. And of course, Psalm 23 is all about protecting the sheep yeah. by the shepherd yeah. uh, with the rod and the staff, even through the valley of deep darkness. Mm. That's a subtle connection. It may be what the, uh, it's always difficult to get into the mind of the psalmist Indeed. or the speaker. But, uh, but there's a connection there between Psalm 23 and Psalm 31, uh, right at that verse uh, 3. And so the net is, is intended to snare the animal. What's also interesting, there is um, reference to pursuers in the psalm as well. In verse 15, deliver me from mm-hmm. the hand of my enemies, from my pursuers. Mm-hmm. And if you read that also... In connection with Psalm 23, that verb to pursue, vradof, mm-hmm. is, is found there at the end. Surely goodness and mercy shall pursue me yep. all pursue the days me. of my life. Not follow. Mm-hmm. That's too lame a translation, yep. but it's, the verb is to pursue. Mm-hmm. So there may be a very subtle allusion there uh, because 
in Psalm 23, we do have enemies uh, that are imagined to be in pursuit uh, of the speaker um, as uh, as the speaker arrives at this place mm-hmm. of safety, um, um, God's house. And now, at the end of Psalm 23, uh, the enemies are no longer in pursuit. They are there, perhaps separated from the speaker uh, along this table at the end of Psalm 23. But now it is God's blessings that are in pursuit, right. uh, which is really interesting for Psalm 23. Mm. But I digress. We're in Psalm 31, right? <laughs> we are. Yeah. We are. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> right. Uh, yeah. So the, the very last verse that we have in this first half of the, the lectionary set that we are discussing today is verse 5, which is perhaps the most famous, right? Uh, thanks to Jesus, similar words from to Luke chapter 23 from verse 46, I guess. Um, yeah. Some, yeah. another layer of inner biblical allusion there as well but we also have a similar possible citation of this verse in acts uh, chapter 7 verse 59 which is um, stephen's death so was there an ancient tradition that stemmed from this verse or perhaps um, why might this verse have been used at these two particular new testament moments and even more fascinating uh what might the quotation of this verse in other parts of the Bible tell us about how the psalm was used and understood at first by Jews in the first century thereof? It goes to show, Paul, that the psalms were not bounded by any particular one singular setting. Mm. Um, The fact that once they are written, um, and they are written for the community, for others to use, the Psalms were designed to be user-friendly and then, of course, from that to be applied in a variety of situations, uh, situations of conflict and danger, right. particularly for the, uh, the laments and the petitions. Um, and so we have uh, wonderful illustrations of that in the New Testament. And I'm first thinking of Psalm 22 with regards to the passion of Christ um, all the way up to the cross in which... Um, yeah, Psalm 22 is used to, in fact, even shape the narrative of Christ's suffering um, um, in, in Jerusalem in his last few days, and particularly um, uh, on the cross with the cry of dereliction, my God, my God, why have you forsaken right, me? Yeah. So, so that's probably the most dramatic use of a psalm uh, Christologically. Um, and then, as you note, uh, we have also in um, uh, Luke where this particular verse, verse 5, into your hand I commend my spirit, is said by Jesus on the cross. And that, for Luke, um, uh, is uh, Jesus' last words Mm -hmm. before uh, he dies from being executed. Um, And then a hint of that is not quite as clear in Acts with regards to Stephen's death by stoning after Stephen has recited the whole story of Israel yeah. leading up to Christ and, and then condemns his audience uh, for um, refusing to acknowledge that Christ is the fulfillment of, uh, of God's history with uh, ancient Israel. Um, and so he's stoned to death, and, and then he cries out in this la- these last words of um, giving up uh, his spirit. In, in, the, in Hebrew, it's ruach, uh, which it literally is spirit, but it's, I think, intimately connected to nephesh, which is frequently um, translated as soul. 
But it really has to do with, um, in a more physical sense, with uh, breath and, uh, and perhaps the location of breath within the body. That is right, right below the throat, the most, one of the most vulnerable places, perhaps, uh, yeah, one of the most vulnerable places for any human body uh, that is to be protected at all costs in a situation of physical uh, danger. Mm-hmm. Um, so it literally is giving up one's breath um, uh, on the point of, of death. But for the psalmist, it doesn't lead to death. And that's what's interesting here. Mm-hmm. Uh, into your hand, I entrust my ruach, mm-hmm. my breath. And then right after that in verse 5, the second half of verse 5, and you have redeemed me, O Lord, faithful God. Oh. So, um, so here, ruach is used um, more perhaps metaphorically as giving up one's life, surrendering one's life to God's will. And in this case, it is God's will to save and not to, not to bring about death or to receive the, uh, the, the, the spirit of the one who has just been deceased. That's right. um, so, so here in the psalm, um, not with regards to Stephen, not with regards to Jesus, the psalmist testifies in the surrendering of one's life, handing over, mm. uh, which is another way to translate uh, that verb. Uh, which would make a really interesting um, mm. kind of translation. Into your hand, I hand over my spirit. Mm. Into your hand, I hand over my spirit. One could translate it that way. Mm. Um, uh, so, uh, yeah, it's, um, uh, it's, it's a surrendering um, that leads them to uh, new life. Right. What's interesting about Psalm 31 is that it, it alternates between dire petition and complaint on the one hand and testimony of deliverance on the other. It kind of goes in circles. Psalm 31 is not a very linear psalm. It uh, turns back on itself uh, on a number of occasions. Uh, And then ends with that uh, stirring admonition to be strong and to persevere, uh, to embolden your heart. Um, Let's make sure that we also cover the a couple of verses that the RCL has left us in uh, in 31. So yeah. let's move yes. toward, we talked a little bit about verse 15. Maybe let's go to verse 16 and hit that. Um, Let your face shine upon your servant. So we often discuss ways to capture the embodied imagery of the biblical text. We've talked a little bit about hands and handing over here. Let your face shine is a common refrain in the Bible and many liturgies today. What does it mean here, perhaps in this context? Yeah, so perhaps the most well-known example is the Aaronite blessing in Numbers chapter 6. Yeah, uh, let your face shine um, upon us or upon you and be gracious unto you and uh, and grant you peace. Um, uh, So the shining of the face uh, throughout uh, many biblical traditions uh, conjures a sense of God's life-giving presence. And in Number six, the blessing of Aaron to the people. It's all about God blessing, uh, God's barakah. Um, and, and that involves um, shalom and uh, life and prosperity, um, all the good things um, that, that comes from God's shining face. And what's interesting in the Psalms is that God's face doesn't shine all the time. Sometimes God's face is hidden. 
you know, the cry from other psalms, why, O oh God, have you hidden your face from me? Uh, so the hidden face, the face turned away, or the obscured face of God is not good. And in this case, the shining face of God is a good and wondrous thing. And the command here to uh, shine forth your face on your servant is a plea for blessing, but within the context of Psalm 31, is also a plea for deliverance and victory over uh, the speaker's enemies. Whoever they are, they are unnamed. They're simply castigated as wicked, and they lie and slander. And so God's shining face here would involve vindication of the speaker, Mm. all coming down to one beautiful, singular word that is perhaps the most prominent character description of God throughout the Psalms, and that is chesed. Save me by your—so I translate that chesed here as faithful benevolence. Mm. Uh, the CEB comes close with faithful love, the NRSV, steadfast love. Um, it's a really um, expansive and deep, profound term that is meant to describe almost really the entirety of God's character that is rooted in a freely made commitment mm. to, um, to be concerned about a people. Um, and so there's a certain kind of paradox to Chesed, as I've discovered, and as many others have as well, is that on the one hand, God's Chesed, God's benevolence, is one of a freely made commitment on the part of God for a particular people. Mm-hmm. Um, on the other hand, Chesed also um, invokes this sort of commitment, uh, really a covenantal commitment to a people. So it's like God freely binding God's self to a people, uh, in this case, Israel. Uh, I am taken with Walter Brueggemann's translation, recent translation of Chesed, uh, tenacious solidarity. Yeah, Ooh. tenacious solidarity. Yeah, that's, that's, that is, that's, God, God becomes, <clears throat> comes into solidarity, yeah. tenaciously so, mm. with a people. And that's what the psalmists constantly appeal to. Um, such as, as Psalm 31, um, save me by your, by your chesed, or save me according to your chesed. Mm. Uh, mm. The speaker is relying on a certain character dimension of God mm. that, um, is, uh, that the psalmist finds reliable, mm. uh, the psalmist can um, depend on, count on, um, bank on, <laughs> bank oh. on for salvation deliverance, um, but it's also, in a sense, by saying chesed back to God, the speaker is reminding God of God's true mm. character, that, oh God, you are a God of chesed. Mm. And it goes mm. back to that first really um, sort of expounding of God's chesed back in Exodus 34, mm. when uh, Moses demands to see God's glory, God says, you can't see my face. Uh, but I'll tell you what I'll do. I'll hide you in a rock on this mm-hmm. mountain, uh, uh, Mount Sinai, mm-hmm. and, uh, and I will pass by. And when God passes by, um, God says, Yahweh, Yahweh, Lord, Lord, a God who is abounding in chesed. Mm-hmm. Um, 
And so God's own self-confession at the mountain before Moses um, is a confession of chesed. And the psalmists count on that. That's why they uh, appeal to God's chesed um, as almost, chesed is almost God, really, coextensive with hmm. God, so much so that when, whenever you have a petition from the psalmist, it's always, it invariably refers to God's chesed. Mm. Um, sometimes compass, compassion, sometimes mercy. Mm. Um, but it all goes back, goes back, it comes full circle, back to chesed as the defining quality that uh, exemplifies God's unwavering concern mm. for a people or for an individual. Mm. And the psalmist here is counting on that. Hence, save me according to your chesed. That's right. Well, I want to make sure that we get a chance to address the preaching task at hand that many are probably listening for. I wonder if I could ask both of you, Bill, Paul, are there ways that you think, um, or ways that you might want to warm preachers uh, that are less helpful ways of preaching this text? Are there, on the other hand, um, other ways that you might see this text preached particularly well? Um, maybe we could just open the conversation a bit for, for preachers who are listening and trying to prepare their own sermons this week. Well, I would say that uh, the, um, the language of strife and conflict uh, and, um, and danger, um, for me, speaks well to American society. <laughs> Polarized that it is, rife with division and conflict, um, Nobody able to see eye to eye with each other, um, whether politically, um, and of course, um, America's exceptionalism being awash with guns and all the gun massacres that have occurred mm. um, last few years, and there just seems to be no, no diminishment of violence um, through shooting, um, and so. We live in a place of danger in which um, uh, there are different ideologies at war with each other. And so for me, that is a, that is a setting that I think the psalm speaks into because the psalmist also feels in danger, uh, cast into this cauldron of conflict and strife in which there are the wicked and there are the righteous. Mm -hmm. And of course, the psalmist counts themselves as a righteous one, mm -hmm. this setting of the psalm assumes a um, a context of polarization, mm. of conflict, mm -hmm. and so how to operate within that. The psalmist is not looking for dialogue here. <laughs> I have to admit that, <laughs> uh, but uh, the psalmist is looking for uh, vindication of of their own cause, and that cause is identified as a righteous cause, mm. and so. Uh, for me, the, really the last verse of the psalm is most important, and that is to be strong and embolden your heart, all of you who wait for the Lord. Um, that theme of waiting for victory, um, in a way that victory is not to be won by our own hands, but won by God, in which the cause of righteousness overcomes the way of wickedness. Uh, so... So I think there's a lot in the psalm that speaks to and gives language to uh, the kind of conflicts that we find ourselves today. 
Yeah, so so that would be my connection with uh, with uh, um, contemporary context. Yeah, I I guess for me the the early verses of the psalm reads a lot like uh, like prayer to me, right? And yeah. um, you know, thinking about uh, people who may be in situations where they are weary. Um, and in need of, you know, some of the words that the psalm evokes, like deliverance, like rescue, like safety even. Um, But they're so wary that it is impossible to even find the words to say a prayer or to pray to God. I feel like the psalm would come in handy by providing a template um, for people in situations like that. So, I hope that, you know, for preachers out there, this will be the chance for you to um, lift up some of these words and offer them as um, options, prayer options or prayer topics or prayer templates that people could use and fall on and find the words that they need um, in prayer, uh, especially for those who are weary. Paul, thank you. I, I would also add to that then, you, you helped me think through on another issue, mm. which I think is so central to the psalm, and that is the, the notion of refuge. Mm. And so can, this, can the church today be a source of refuge for, for people That's right. uh, who feel beleaguered and beset mm-hmm. uh, by, by violence and by conflict? Mm. Uh, can the church be a sanctuary of safety and security? That's right. Um, it's interesting that in verse eight, um, the speaker testifies for uh, for being set in a broad place, in a wide open place, that is a place of freedom. And so, mm-hmm. refuge also is freedom um, for the psalmist. Um, can the church serve that function, mm-hmm. not as a um, not as a hideaway, not as a um, uh, sort of its own enclave? but as a refuge that can bring the broken and the fearful and the persecuted together in a place of safety and sustenance mm-hmm. and, uh, and deliverance mm-hmm. that grants freedom then for mm-hmm. folks who, who feel that they have no freedom. I think that also helps connect to the New Testament reading from the Gospels, John chapter 14, where Jesus talks about the Father's house, so the place that I've prepared for you. Yes. So if, yes. if folks or preachers are looking for ways to uh, create a conversation between these readings, I, I think there's something available in what you and Paul have both raised um, in this image of where do we find refuge or sanctuary or comfort that broad open space that the psalmist longs for in the midst of being so tightly persecuted, pressed uh, in. Um, so this image uh, of both uh, the fortress, uh, the citadel city, um, and this broad open space remains like uh, intention within the psalm as well. So where do we, where do we find that um, space where life can flourish, where dialogue can actually happen? Um, but then I also think about... Um, the stoning of Stephen and that um, what is interesting too about what Paul has highlighted is there's no prayer from Stephen to be rescued from um, his persecutors. He submits. Um, And so there might be something to think about different responses to conflict, um, different responses to persecution. Here the psalmist is modeling a kind of resistance, um, not a direct one, but in his prayer asking for God to intervene to change the circumstance. When we look at 
the stoning of Stephen, what I see is someone who's who's submitted to perhaps the inevitable and there, um, but still holding fast to his vision for the people when he says, I commend my spirit to God, but I also ask that this not be held against the people that are that are hurting me. So there's some there's something there. So I say, Rosie, I, I'm particularly taken with your reference to John uh, when Jesus talks about uh, uh, many dwelling places uh, or many mansions, and for the psalmist, that is the refuge. Uh, but it mm-hmm. is a it is a big place. It is a broad place. It's a wide open place that accommodates not only the speaker but uh, but others, the, the whole community. Uh, and of course, Jesus is speaking to his disciples uh, with regards to what Jesus is preparing for them. So God prepares the refuge. Jesus prepares the uh, the uh, the many mansions, the many dwelling places. Yeah, so thank you for lifting that mm. up. Well, that seems like a great way, a uh, great image to end our podcast on, um, a house with many rooms. Uh, Bill, an honor to have you as our special guest this week, and thank you for being with the First Reading Podcast family today. It is my delight and privilege, Rosie and Paul. It's great to converse with you. Well, folks, that's a wrap. If you liked what you heard this week, there's plenty more over at our website, freshreadingpodcast.com. You can subscribe to the podcast there or wherever you listen to podcasts. We also post each episode on Facebook, so you can listen from there as well and kindly share. If you have found this resource helpful, please consider hitting the donate button for freshreadingpodcast.com to help sustain the podcast with a one-time or recurring donation. You can also help by sharing the podcast with your friends and colleagues and strangers on the street, but especially with the preachers in your life. First Reading is produced by me, Paul Essa, Rosie Kenderthal, Tim McNinch, and Dr. Rachel Rand. Special thanks this week to Blue Dot Sessions for the music behind the reading, and thanks to you all for listening. I'm Rosie Kenderthal. My name is Paul Essa. Have a great week.